This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Leif from AJ Bell and with me today is Dan from Shares Magazine. Hello. It's the two Bs this week, Dan. On the podcast, oh. we've got Bitcoin and Brexit. I'm sure you'd be glad to know. Uh, we've got Russ <laughs> Mold from AJ Bell. He's joining us to explain why cryptocurrency is winning new fans. We'll also be speaking to Alexandra Jackson from Rathbones, um, talking, among other things, about the Brexit trade deal, why that's given a boost to many UK stocks. Yeah, we're also going to consider how many people have got a lot more cash in their pockets. I think the social life has been killed by lockdown. So Lacey's going to run through ways in which to get a better return on that money. That's right, I will be. But first, it's time for a weekly look at the markets. Quite a bit going on at the moment, Dan. We've got quite a few kind of IPOs that seem to be popping up, including including Dr. Martin's. And there also seems to be a bit of a shift in sentiment um, towards the UK stock market. What what are you seeing? What's your take on what's going on? Yeah, I mean, also the FTSE 100 had the best start ever to the calendar year this year. I mean, so in, in the first week, it was up 6.4%, which is fantastic. So that was driven by um, lots of these, these sort of big commodity producers and um, sort of banks being vogue. But it's actually slipped back a bit this week so it's still um 4.6% ahead which is which is good that's the third best index globally after the CSI 300 in Shanghai and, and the Russia trading index but i think what's happening here is that us treasury yields are rising so th- these are the, the yields on the government bonds uh, and the bond market's sort of sending these signals that interest rates could go up sooner than perhaps was previously expected because we've had the Democratic blue sweep of Congress uh, and White House almost certainly means that there's going to be more government spending. Um, so this could accelerate economic recovery and cause inflation. So so before we actually would get any rate hikes, the, the Federal Reserve, uh, the US Central Bank, would have to cut back its asset purchases. So that would reduce the flow of liquidity into the market. So this is a sort of that's been troubling some investors this week. And it's called sort of this tapering, as it's known, could potentially start at the end of this year or start perhaps early 2022. But it, it would boost bond yields, which isn't really good for equities that are trading on very high valuations, such as all the big tech stocks. So um, people were perhaps started the new year in very optimistic mood. And now they're sort of they're trying to get their heads around what might happen next. So the, the market's very much looking beyond the reopening trade uh, and the vaccine sort of uh, being administered to people and literally you know i always say the stock market is about forward it's forward looking it's not backward looking um yeah you know it's looking at 2022 now which some people might think is a bit odd given that we're only just started 2021 but um you know such is the way of life for investors i'm afraid so um if we look at you know, so what so what does that mean for the FTSE 100 why is that sort of come back a little bit this week well that's been hit in part by the stronger pound. So you've got to think that about three quarters of its constituents earn in foreign currency. So um, strength in the pound isn't necessarily good for them. Uh, but you know, the, the reason why the pound is up, because there's comments from Andrew Bailey, the head of the Bank of England, who 
um, you play down the possibility of introducing negative interest rates because he described this policy as a bit controversial. So um, I think that was a bit of a release to people who, who were perhaps a bit worried about it. Um, and actually, the FTSE 100 has been supported by quite a strong oil price. So BP and Shell are in the top five best performing FTSE 100 stocks this year. I reckon it's been a long time since they've been popular with investors. So, I mean, that, to, to me, that's quite an interesting move. Um, so elsewhere, um, you're starting to get a trickle of companies talking about how, how trading has been particularly over Christmas. So we're getting sort of quite interesting trading updates. And we've just had one from the online fashion retailer ASOS, who's saying things are going very well. Demand's actually a bit better than expected. So this is, um, I, I was trying to think of what, what was going on with ASOS. Their target market is young people. So uh, they're not going out. So what, why is it that they're buying new clothes all the time? And also, how, how is it that, that loads of them are able to afford lots of new clothes? Because if you think um, of the, the industries that have been uh, affected by um, the lockdown restrictions being uh, mostly being leisure and retail, I mean, this is a very large employment area for, for younger people. So um, theoretically, ASOS shouldn't be doing that well. But I actually think it's probably to do with it. They live their life through social media. Uh, so many people these days that they want to still be looking for looking good online um, or, or people just might be really bored at home. I mean, at Lath, how, how much online sort of clothes shopping have you been doing? Because you've got well, nothing to do apart from work. No, not, not a huge amount. And despite being remarkably young, I've never shopped on ASOS. But <laughs> um, yeah, I do, uh, I do. I do use kind of online for, I guess, Amazon stuff, just kind of like just having deliveries of, of, of random things. But not really, I have to admit, not really clothes over the last year because I guess I have kind of been wearing very similar stuff day after day because you know there's no there's no going out is there so that doesn't I, I never really thought about that that was actually a motivation to buy clothes but actually it turns out that it is <laughs> <laughs> i mean we, we had some figures out from marks and spencers as well so food is doing really well there but their clothing sales are absolutely rubbish so um i think you know no one's going to go out uh, or or go online to proactively buy a suit at the moment i mean well certainly not many people would do um so poor old marks and spencers is sort of just reliant on um people ordering their pants and socks and um you know some some athleisure because actually they're they're a bit underappreciated in terms of their position in um sort of sportswear stuff they're actually quite big in this market so they've certainly seen ongoing uh, demand for you know, people needing to do exercise during during lockdown but thank god it did that joint venture with Ocado, um to to have an online capability because you could just imagine now if 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 Marks and Spencer's didn't have the capacity to to deliver its food online it would be so left behind and just be be in a terrible situation so talk about good timing there um so yeah, some of the other stuff we've seen an update from games workshop um, I don't know if any of our listeners are, are big fans of buying these little miniature figures and painting them. Certainly got lots of friends and family who, who, uh, who love doing it. Um, but it's a bit of a strange one here. Extremely good update, but shares fell nearly 7%. Which I can only just put down to profit taking by investors because they'd had a really good run ahead of the results. Um, and then finally, the big thing that sort of um, is sort of catching people's eyes is 
these IPOs are these sort of new companies coming to the stock market. So we've had Moonpig and Dr. Martins um, both say that they're, they're, they're intending to sort of uh, put their shares to, uh, available for the public to buy. So Moonpig is uh, a place, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, you can go on there and order greetings cards. You can design them yourselves. Obviously, Doc Martins is, is the very famous boot seller. Um, but, but both these companies are sort of seem to be commanding very high valuations. So um, there's talk that Moonpig could be worth more than a billion pounds. So it did 173 million pound sales in the year to April 2020, 155 million pound sales in the following six months. So sales have been accelerating while we've all been stuck at home and um, still want to sort of send birthday cards and stuff to people. But um i wonder you know once lockdown ends we get back to perhaps normal life um i wonder if sales might sort of slow down or sales growth might slow down here so it wants to be seen as a tech business such as the way that uh, so many companies come into the market now um but really it's still a greetings card seller that just happens to use the internet to do it um and the other one is dr martin's you know great brand Lots of people have been criticizing this company for you know 15 years or so about a change in quality. They, they, uh, it was about 15, 16 years ago that they switched manufacturing to China. And there's been lots of sort of criticism ever since that, that they're not as good as they used to be. Um, now, sales have been picking up quite well. Um, but here, this business is, is touted to be worth three billion pounds on the market. So, um, in the six months to September, it, it, it made 318 million pound sales. And if you look, go back to last full year, um, which ran till March 2020, that was 672 million pounds worth of sales. So three billion. Um, you, you could potentially say that the brand is so strong um, and it's sort of it's got quite wide appeal. Um, for its boots, it maybe maybe that's justified, but I'll, I'll have to sort of see the ins and outs of the figures when it actually does, you know, confirms it is definitely going ahead with the market. But um, to me, Dr. Martin's is, is, is used to be um, superb reputation, but that's been tainted. So I think there's a bit of work there to do. You got you got a pair of docs, Lath? Never had one actually. Yeah, they were quite fashionable when I was young. I remember lots of people at school having them, but I've never owned one. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely used to have them, but I, I stopped when I felt that they something had changed. That was a while ago. Though. Something changed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, interesting on the quality thing, because I think that same thing about stuff like Cadbury's cream eggs as well. Have you, have you tried a Cadbury's cream egg recently? It's much worse yeah, well, than they used to be. I mean, there's been a lot of things where the quality has just gone down. Um, I kind of feel sorry for kids today trying Cadbury's cream eggs because they're not they're not the real thing. They're not as good as they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they, just, they don't know any different, you see, so they just <laughs> the sugar hits. So, yeah. <laughs> just shove the chocolate so, in the mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to some personal finance stuff. So I think we, it seems like we're a bit of a divided nation at the moment. So there's lots of people either on furlough or, or have sadly lost their jobs. But equally, there's lots of people who are still in work but find they've got more cash uh, available, um, you know, more spare cash to hand because they just simply aren't going out. So there's nothing to spend it on. So let's, what should people in this situation perhaps be doing with this cash perhaps to get a better return on it? Um, well, yeah, absolutely. Probably quite a lot of cash building up. It was 120 billion pounds built up last year, actually, in bank and building society accounts. Um, as a result of lockdown, that compares with 42 billion year year before. So we're talking about, you know, a very large amount of money. And a lot of us have probably experienced it, you know, as you say, those who've been lucky enough to keep our jobs and, and income. 
um, you know, the money just builds up in your current account. But the problem is current accounts are paying pretty close to diddly squat at the moment. Your average current account is paying point uh, 13%. Those are the ones that pay interest. And there's actually around £220 billion pounds now uh, in the UK just sitting in instant access accounts that are paying zero interest. So, you know, if you have got cash building up, I think it's important to recognize that and and just do something about it. Now, you know, the, the list of options that you have is probably endless, but I've picked out a few that you might want to think about. Uh, the first one is to pay down any expensive debt like credit cards. If you think about, you know, a credit card where you might be paying 17% interest, you know, if you're paying that off, you're essentially getting a, you're making an investment with a guaranteed return of uh, 17%. Now, there aren't many, many other places that you can do that. Um, then after you kind of thought, you know, after you pay down expensive debt time to maybe think about paying down your mortgage, um, the, the rate that you, you get from, from doing that is much lower. Average mortgage rate is, is 2.1%, but obviously that varies depending on the term when you took it out, etc. So, so check on that. But uh, that still compares favorably to what you're getting from a, um, a savings account. But with mortgages, mortgage lenders often do have a, a maximum amount they're going to allow you to overpay uh, before um, they, they start penalizing you. So uh, there may be a limited amount of money that you can use that uh, you, you, can, you can actually push in that, in that direction. Um, next thing you could do is actually act, actively manage your cash. So shopping around for the best rate on, on savings uh, and also looking at fixed term bonds. Uh, if you lock your money away for a bit longer, then um, you, you often do get higher rates. Actually, at the moment, everything's a bit distorted because there are some expectations that, you know, the Bank of England might, um, might, might, might cut interest rates. It was interesting we say down about Andrew Bailey saying that, uh, you know, pouring cold water in the idea of negative rates. There have been other policymakers in the Bank of England talking up negative rates. So I think they're just trying to confuse us, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so that's at the moment, that's kind of having an effect on the cash market. You can still get better rates for, for rocking, locking away for one year. If you look beyond that, you're not getting a huge amount, much more yield for, uh, for locking your money away. But still worth keeping an eye on those rates because they do change. Um, and another cash product you might want to consider is premium bonds. Um, obviously, the interest is not paid to you. It's put into a prize pool and then it's distributed unevenly. Uh, but the rate is actually 1%. That looks pretty good. Um, you know, the best buy at the moment is somewhere around 0.75% mark for an instant access account. So a 1% from premium bonds looking quite good. Uh, and also it's tax free. So um, NSNI has cut rates on a lot of its products recently. Um, which um, many of our readers, uh, many of our listeners will probably have, have uh, heard about from from previous podcasts, but um, um, it's still offering pretty good rates on on premium bonds. And then, if you're thinking about perhaps putting money away for a bit longer, uh, then looking at investing in the market through maybe an ISA. Uh, so we've got the the end of the tax year coming up, fifth of April uh, ISA deadline. Um, uh, so uh, you can put £20,000 into ISA, it's then free from income tax and capital gains tax as well. And finally, if you're willing to put it away for the really long term, then thinking about topping up uh, your pension, you obviously get the tax relief on that up front. And, um, and then that's also the gains on that are free from capital gains tax and, it's, uh, and the you know, dividends are free from income tax as well. So 
you know, we can't spend stuff on, on things that we want to do right now. But, you know, if you're thinking about putting it away in a pension for the long term, hopefully that means that, you know, by the time you retire, you'll have a bit more to spend on things that you want to do when you finish working. Yeah, I think that there's, there's always one thing I think about ISAs is um, if you if you want to invest in the stock market, um, you can put money into an investment ISA. But you don't have to invest it. You can just it can sit there until you're ready to to make a decision. I think lots of people think that they're under a lot of pressure to to do everything in one go. Because I know a lot of people think, well, I, I'm not, I'm a bit nervous about. The, the state of the markets now but um say come three or four months time you might feel a bit better but um i think it's a really good habit even if it's, it's going beyond simply having a, a bit of lump sum of cash now but if you get into the the regular savings habit just keep feeding your isa uh, with more cash and then you invest it at your leisure but um it's just getting into that habit i think yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And that's I think that's particularly relevant, Dan, because the end of the tax year is coming up and it's a deadline by which you have to get the money in. And you're absolutely right. You can put the money in without actually investing it just yet. Um, and that, as you say, gives you then the potential to drip feed it into the markets over the, the next you know number of months or, or the next year, however long you want to take. And you've, you've actually still secured your allowance for this year. So I think that's a very important point, particularly at this time of the year when we're coming up towards that end of tax year deadline. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to have a, a look at Bitcoin. Uh, so once the domain of day traders, institutional investors are now showing interest. Um, people are looking for an alternative store of value beyond gold. And it seems that Bitcoin is being touted as the place to look by many people. So start of early December, this was trading at less than $20,000, but one month later, it's trading above $40,000. So it's doubled in price. I mean, this rally has been absolutely huge, but actually in, in recent days, it's been a big drop again. And I think this, these sort of wild moves that you see in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies sort of make a lot of serious investors nervous about it. So at the same time, the, the financial regulator, the FCA, has issued a warning about putting money into this part of the market, saying that consumers do need to understand the risks involved. So in light of all this news, we thought it was worth explaining exactly what cryptocurrencies are, why the price has been going crazy, how you might invest in them, and importantly, what could go wrong. So I'm delighted to say that Russ Smold, Investment Director at AJ Bell, is here with all the answers. So Russ, thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, let's start by uh, asking, could you explain exactly what cryptocurrencies are? Bitcoin is probably the best known cryptocurrency, but there are plenty of them. According to the website coinmarketcap.com, there are now over 4,000 cryptocurrencies with an ascribed value of just over a trillion dollars. A cryptocurrency is a digital asset and payment system, a virtual currency where intermediaries play a very limited role and central banks and governments, well, they have no role at all. It's encrypted and the creation or transfer of every Bitcoin, for example, is kept on a ledger and archived for maximum transparency as to the supply, although the encryption element ensures anonymity for users. The concept was first outlined in a 2008 paper called Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. The identity of the author, Satoshi Nakamoto, as well as their motives are still shrouded in mystery, but he, or she, issued, or to use the right jargon, mined, the first bitcoins back in 2009. So Russ, can you explain how do cryptocurrencies work? 
This is all made possible by so-called blockchain technology, a database that maintains an ever-growing list of records called blocks. Each block's linked to its predecessor and bears a timestamp. To borrow an analogy from Mr Trevor Neal of Beta Group, who spoke very eloquently on the subject of cryptocurrencies at an event hosted by the Chartered Institute of Securities and Investment that I went to a year or two ago, well, if cryptocurrencies represent cars, Bitcoin is one single model, albeit the best-known one, and blockchain is the engine that makes them all tick. So would you say that cryptocurrencies are money? Are cryptocurrencies money? Okay, well, first of all, we need to agree upon what money really is. Ultimately, money is a widely accepted, trusted means of facilitating transactions over time and distance. Money is also supposed to be a store of value. Now, in the past, humans have used cowrie shells, cows, metal, slips of paper, plastic cards, you name it. So long as someone believes in cryptocurrencies, then they and their network do have some value. And the more people there are in the network and the more believers there are, then the more value the cryptocurrencies may have. That said, there are still several potential drawbacks. For example, the Bitcoin mining process that's required as part of the computational plan to create new Bitcoins and provide proof of work is actually very energy intensive and quite inefficient and quite expensive. Second, Bitcoin supply is limited to just 21 million. There are already more than 18 million in issue, and it's estimated that all of Bitcoin will be mined by 2040. It's also got a clumsy cost structure. Miners receive a bonus for solving the algorithm when they mine a coin, and this is paid in Bitcoin as a tiny percentage of the face value. <laughs> no big deal when Bitcoin reached $1 in 2011, but a pretty big deal when it crossed $10,000 in 2017, and an even bigger one now it's trading over $30,000. It can therefore make transactions costly, at least prohibitively so, for micropayments in, say, coffee shops or supermarkets. Nor is it necessarily the best efficient uh, payment system, the most efficient payment system. It's slower than Visa, which reportedly can handle around 1,700 transactions a second. Bitcoin's maximum is supposedly about seven. While rival cryptocurrencies Ethereum and Ripple can manage it around 15 and 1,500 respectively across their own blockchains. Now, perhaps the biggest drawback on Bitcoin is that it's still, it's still accepted as payment on a fairly limited basis, although acceptance is definitely growing. Now, we can't go to the supermarket in Britain and use it, and we can't pay our taxes with it either, at least in the UK, although cryptocurrencies are viewed as a capital asset by the tax authorities. So, any capital gains on Bitcoin will be subject to capital gains tax, depending upon how much of your annual capital gains tax allowance that you may have left in a given year, for example. So that takes us on to whether Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies can be seen as an investable asset. So, Russ, what do you think? Are they? Well, we've discussed is Bitcoin money. Now, is it an investment? Well, the price has shot up. So somebody somewhere thinks there's an investment here and that there is money to be made from it. And I would say looking at the last two or three years, there are probably three types of people or investors who own or buy or trade cryptocurrencies. The first, well, they're the true believers who see cryptos as the future of payments and the next leg in the evolution of money. Trials by Starbucks who accept payment in Bitcoin, investment in Bitcoins by payments provider system Square, and software company MicroStrategy last summer, well, they're given the concept of cryptocurrencies extra and substantial additional credence. The next batch, well, those who, they're those who are looking on in horror at how government's budget deficits are surging and central bank balance sheets are swelling. They were, now, they were doing that before the pandemic, and the process has simply accelerated since. But these investors see this as money printing and debasement of currency. After all, how many things can you think of that go up in value when ever greater amounts of it becomes available? 
Yeah, not much, right? So these investors are looking for assets that can preserve wealth, whether it's gold, hard assets like commodities, or perhaps digital ones like Bitcoin in the face of ever greater monetary supply. And these people see Bitcoin's limited supply at 21 million as a good thing, because unlike money supply, where you get unlimited amounts of cash coming out, they view this as a, as a potential positive in the store of wealth. And also from an investment point of view, if you get unlimited amounts of cash chasing an asset that's in finite supply, well, prices could rise and rise by a lot. And then the third group, well, to put none too fine a point on it, we've got momentum jockeys who are jumping in because Bitcoin and cryptos are going up and they think they can make a turn. There could be an argument for that some of these are putting cash into the now $16 billion American fund, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is hoovering up Bitcoin seemingly as fast as it can. And that's all well and good, but if the hot money ever bails out, then you could see a lot of volatility. Remember, Bitcoin proved no use as a store of value in the wider market panic of March 2020, when COVID-19 first swept the world and pretty much everything collapsed in price from a financial market perspective. So Bitcoin boomed in 2017, collapsed in 2018, rallied in early 2020, collapsed again, and then finally went bananas, setting a string of new all-time highs as it crossed $20,000, $30,000, and then $40,000 for the first time. So why has it returned to favour? Bitcoin's return to favour. Now, again, many different things at work here. Uh, Probably the combination of rising prices, luring in new money, Government deficits surging with the promise of more spending to come, especially in America, regardless of who's in the White House. You've got central banks saying they're happy to let inflation run hot and keep running ultra loose monetary policy. All of those things are contributing. And also, we seem to be in a bit of a bull market for financial assets right now. So cryptos may well be riding that tide. However, there are also angles put forward by libertarians who don't like the idea of central backed of government-backed, central bank-backed digital currencies, where every transaction can therefore be tracked as societies go cashless. Now, that might not seem like such a big deal to many of us in the developed West, but if you live under an authoritarian regime, or one where the economy is collapsing in a heap, having a currency that's free from prying eyes or the ravages of inflation will seem very attractive and, quite frankly, could even be life-saving. On the investment front, you've also got institutional fund managers like Ruffer starting to buy Bitcoin, Fidelity offering a fund on it, and investment bank Morgan Stanley openly discussing it in asset allocation strategies. That all potentially opens up institutional money and a fresh wall of liquidity chasing again an asset with a finite supply. So, Russ, if someone wanted to get more information on cryptocurrencies, where would they need to go? There's no shortage of information on Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. The internet is awash with comments and dedicated website on the topics. For some good basic information, coinmarketcap.com and coindesk.com are pretty good starters, but it won't take investors long to go or savers long to go find more and go beyond them. You just need to consider the source and work out which ones you trust and which ones you don't. So how do you go about investing in them? Assuming that the person who's interested felt that cryptocurrencies were right for them, that they fit their own personal investment strategy, target returns, time horizon and risk appetite. Cryptocurrencies, well, they're not regulated in the UK. So if investors do decide that they are suitable uh, and something were to then go wrong, unfortunately, they'd lose money. Losses would not be covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. In addition, the Financial Conduct Authority does seem still a little bit wary of the risks involved. 
It's recently banned the sale and promotion of derivative products such as spread bets, contract for differences, and also exchange-traded note trackers related to cryptocurrencies, and it's banned their sale to private and promotion to private investors. The regulator cites in particular, and I quote, the inherent nature of the underlying assets, which means they have no reliable basis for valuation. Think about that. No reliable basis for valuation, so what are you buying? Something based on an algorithm, a code devised by someone whose identity is unknown, some would say. Now, even if you think that's unfair, cryptos don't generate cash, so valuing them is extremely hard. Although the same could be said for gold, and a largely inert lump of shiny stuff. Now, some even argue that cryptos are just a Ponzi scheme, as hot money flows in at the bottom and the smart money flows out at the top. And it's up to you to decide whether Bitcoin and cryptos are literally worth their price or not. Now, if you do think so, you'll need a cryptocurrency exchange account. You'll need to connect that to your preferred payment option and you'll need to set up a secure wallet with its own private key for secure storage. And after that, you're on your way. Alternatively, several UK small cap stocks on the AIM market either invest in Bitcoin or cryptos or are investing in blockchain technologies, while the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust operates in America, as we've discussed before. It's a giant fund designed to try and track the value of Bitcoin. Grayscale also offers funds that look to track Ethereum, Ripple, Litecoin and other cryptos, although they trade over-the-counter, OTC, not on mainstream US exchanges. I think probably one of the most important questions that we have to ask for this subject is what could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> okay, well, well, the price collapses of 2017 and early 2020 show what can go wrong. You can lose money. There have also been some high-profile fraud cases, such as the Mt. Gox exchange in Japan, where Bitcoin wallets were emptied and the assets simply disappeared. And even more spectacularly, there was the one-coin cryptocurrency fraud run by the Bulgarian Ruha Ignatova, which have been turned into a BBC TV, a BBC radio t series. And that really did turn out to be nothing more than a spectacular Ponzi scheme. Central banks are looking at cryptos and they're looking at it very carefully. After all, it's their job at the moment to control money supply. Now, whether you think they're doing a good job or a bad one is up to you. But cryptos could be seen as circumventing them, reducing their power. I can't see that being too popular with central bankers. At the moment, cryptos are probably too small, even at $1 trillion in aggregate, to really demand a lot of scrutiny. But the bigger they get, it seems likely to assume the more attention they'll get. Central banks are already responding with central bank digital currencies, or certainly CBDCs are under discussion. And there are three or four examples of this. First, the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland's Loretta Mester has publicly raised the prospect of Americans having an account with the Federal Reserve, into which the central bank simply pumps digital dollars, which can then be spent. Second, the European Central Bank has reportedly filed to trademark the term digital euro. And third, the Bank of Japan is openly discussing what it calls CBDC, central bank digital currencies, with work beginning this spring on issues such as resilience, and there are trials planned with a limited number of households. Although, I should stress that to prevent a public panic, the BOJ is emphasising that CBDCs will be used to complement and not replace or supplement paper money. History students will also look at potential other risks uh, from their perspective. They'll hark back to US President Franklin D. Roosevelt's Executive Order 6102, which in 1933 criminalised the possession of gold. Now, using this as a precedent, the authorities could still get involved if they wish to by, say, banning transactions involving Bitcoin and cryptos. So it might not get to, pay too com might to be too complacent, even if at the moment this looks highly unlikely. So thanks for putting it all into plain English for us. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will really appreciate it. So we'll move on to our final guest on this week's podcast. And 
pleased to welcome Alexander Jackson, who is the fund manager of the Rathbone UK Opportunities Fund. So Leith will talk to her about the Brexit effect on markets, whether investors are too late to benefit from the green revolution and why AIM stocks have been doing so well recently. So over to you, Leith and Alexandra. Very glad to be joined today by Alexandra Jackson, the manager of the Rathbone UK Opportunities Fund. Alexandra, welcome to the pod. Hi, Leith. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Um, I guess just before we, we get talking about your, your investment approach, probably just like to check in and, and get your view on the UK stock market more broadly uh, at the moment. It's obviously been badly beaten up over the last year or so. We've had you know, news of a Brexit deal recently. Do you think that kind of heralds a change in, in sentiment towards the UK market? Is that, is that something you're actually seeing any, any evidence of at the moment, or is, is that still pie in the sky? Yeah, um, it's happening. It's definitely happening. Um, we saw it quite markedly in the final week of the year. Um, there, were, there was, I think, $1.5 billion of inflows actually in the last couple of weeks of 2020. Um, and from what I see, it's continuing at the moment, um, barely offset really by um, the new national lockdown. Um, actually, flows, from what I can tell, started to return to UK assets in November. Um, and now that we have more certainty, obviously, around the Brexit deal, we see this um, continuing for a while. Um, as we expected, it's a pretty skinny deal. But the important thing for markets I think, is that the no deal scenario was avoided. So that means that businesses can obviously start to plan and invest again. They've got a bit more surety. Um, and I think it's it's that uncertainty that's the real killer. You know, last year we saw that businesses can actually endure quite a tough trading environment. Um, but it's the uncertainty that really hamstrings uh, investment and planning. Um, and I think over the last, you know, four and a bit years, however long it's been, any investor who could flee the UK market did just that. And so we saw allocations um, at a low since 2014. Um, and that's had a big impact on valuations, of course. So we see UK equities at more than a two decade low against their global peers. And actually, both the last two times that this um, has happened before, the UK was able to beat the global benchmark over the next um, 12 months. So we've got that nice kind of valuation cushion compared to the rest of the world and an earning, earnings bounce coming up. Um, and, and that provides for me the investment case. And then the Brexit deal provides the catalyst. Um, so we've got, you know, UK GDP is now forecast to be one and a half times higher this year than European levels. Um, and we know that there's still a lot of money, um, you know, a lot of cash on the sidelines in money market funds. So to me, the UK looks quite an interesting home now for some of that cash. Um, once our sort of postcode discount starts starts to close. Um, obviously, we need to balance this against, you know, further COVID restrictions, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, and when investors start returning, this is something we saw kind of after the general election in 2019, typically first you see index flows um, and then the stock picking comes later on. So, you know, our message is that you still need to pick quite carefully. And I, and I guess just on that on that kind of stock picking, I mean, your fund actually performed pretty well last year against a, a, a more torrid backdrop for the, the market as a, as a whole. And one of the reasons um, looks to have been that you had quite a high weighting to, to aim stocks. Why do you think it was that that area of the market performed so well last year? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the fund performed strongly last year. So we were up um, 6.8% uh, against our benchmark, which was down nearly 10% and our peers down 6%. Um, 
um, as you say, AIM was really, really strong, um, up 20% actually for the AIM uh, index, while the FTSE 100 was down 11 something percent. And I think this is about the, the types of companies that make up AIM nowadays um, and the characteristics that they have. So fundamentally, it's a younger, it's a growthier index. That was the right style last year. Um, also, it has a lower dividend payout. So, you know, it was kind of able to avoid um, the painful dividend cuts that hurt the, the FTSE 100. Um, when I look at my performance, actually six of my top 10 performers last year are AIM listed and they were all up, actually quite a widespread, but the, the, the worst performer, as it were, was up 25% and the best up 400. Um, and they were the COVID winners, um, which AIM actually has quite a lot of. So remote communications companies, uh, video games, um, lots of tech, really. Um, uh, renewable energy as well. And I think that's the point about why AIM has done so well. On a sector level, AIM actually looks much more like the S&P 500, which obviously did very well last year, um, more than it looks like the FTSE. So AIM has 40% in tech, healthcare, retail sectors, um, and 50% um, of the S&P is in those sectors, whereas it's only it's less than 20% in the FTSE. Um, so you've got more tech, you've got more growth, got more free cash flow generation in the index, more earnings momentum, the potential for M&A. Um, all of those things were in favour last year. So it's no surprise, really, um, looking back that it had a really strong year. Um, I think, you know, let's not forget, though, that over the slightly longer term, AIM does have a more mixed track record. Uh, the FTSE 250 has the best long term uh, returns profile. Okay, and I mean, if we if we I guess take that a step further, I mean, looking at looking at small cap as well, the FTSE small cap index yeah. also had quite a good year last year, um, and and is actually you know pretty close to a record high actually. Yeah. But within your portfolio, you're you're skewed you know much more heavily towards AIM stocks rather than s- small cap. What is it about the kind of difference between the two? Why are you finding more opportunities in AIM than in small caps? Do you think? Mm. Yeah, I've never actually really had um, historically a particularly big small cap weighting in the fund. Uh, We don't invest at all in companies um, that have a market cap of less than £100 million. That's a much more specialist area. It often requires constant fundraising. Um, You know, I think there are other fund managers much, much better um, at that than us. So our aim weighting actually has been quite steady at around sort of 30, 32% for a few years now. Um, We don't want investors to be kind of put off by by that aim weighting, though. Our exposure is, it's it's in the upper reaches of aim. Um, So it's spread across 15 um, quite large, very high quality, sensible, well-managed, proper businesses. They're not, um, you know, binary, one-shot kind of pipe dreams. Um, They all generate revenue. It's it's an exotic concept, I know. Um, (laughs) And we see these success stories. So some of our best performers last year, like Sarah's Power, um, Team 17, and then other more, I guess, more kind of steady mainstream companies like Breeden. Um, They're helping AIM to maybe move on slightly from its old reputation of being a bit of a a wild west. Um, And what we found is that excluding anything smaller than that 100 million pound cutoff, you've automatically really increased the quality of the universe hugely. Um, So we we tend to stick to that rule. um, Mm. And it's, it's, it's served us well so far. Yeah, and I guess uh, you're. I mean, that that's, that really rings true. That actually, I guess, I mean, you know, one of the I guess perceptions of AIM that it is that it is, 
you know, a market of of small companies, and there are certainly small companies on there. But what you're saying is yeah. that you're actually finding opportunities in some of the kind of bigger, perhaps more robust uh, companies on the market. Mm. Um, yeah, exactly. Not all of them, though. <laughs> not all of them. Yeah, absolutely. There's still obviously the stock picking that needs to be done as well. I mean, you you actually mentioned um, um, technology. Um, there as well mm. it's an area where you know your portfolio is is overweight compared to you know the uk index which in itself isn't that hard a thing because as you, as you mentioned we don't really have a, a huge um uh, amount of technology in the in the broad FTSE or share um i mean what's your kind of view on tech at the moment are, are we getting to the point where valuations have, have have got ahead of themselves and you know as a you know a growth investor i think i think you, you think it's fair fair, fair fair for me to kind of apply that tag is that the case for growth stocks more 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 broadly? Are, are we getting to the point where you know they, the the kind of valuation has got ahead of itself, and maybe there's a bit of a pullback to come? Mm. Yeah, good question. Interesting question. I uh, yes, I'm definitely a, a growth investor, um, and as you say, tech is um, is a big overweight for me. It's my second biggest overweight sector. As you say, it's actually not that hard to be overweight tech. Um, I think the FTSE 100 has less than 1% um, in the tech sector. So you do need to look a bit further down the market cap scale. So we're finding, you know, again, most of those opportunities in the FTSE 250 um, and lots again in AIM. Um, in terms of valuation, the the majority of the kind of quality tech names have definitely re-rated in the last 12 months, particularly um, anyone that's helping customers to digitise um, or, or helping consumers to get through lockdown. So the P has gone up. Yes, um, but I would argue also so has the E, the earnings of these businesses. So these kind of firms, they now have a larger audience. They've got a stronger business case. They've often now got a better product. Um, and in most cases, they've managed to get a lower cost base this year. Um, I was talking to IT consultant Kanos, who's one of my big holdings, um, the other day, and they've managed to raise their margin by 10 percentage points um, thanks to cutting costs. I mean, that is huge. So that's about kind of their sales team sales team not um, not traveling and uh, going abroad so much and yes they will get back on planes and go and see clients at some point but a lot of those costs actually have been permanently taken out as people reassess how to do business this is a huge boost to profits um, on top of what is also a bigger revenue pie so um I think there's quite a lot more to go for in these names that have proven resilient growth um, because their market is growing and their offer has got better. And I'm happy to pay up a bit for that fundamental strength. Um, I would caution against companies that aren't really tech, but have sort of given themselves that label, but they're really, you know, marketing companies or distribution companies. Um, and also against companies where the growth actually just isn't there. Um, so hence why I want to focus on the, the proven, tangible, visible growth. Um, in the short term, yes, I think you could see a bit of a pause um, as investors want to you know, increase their exposure to companies that have been hit hardest by COVID and therefore could bounce back along with, with the vaccine. Um, we're seeing this at the moment as well as bond yields are spiking, um, which does apply, as you say, more generally to growth stocks, not just the, the, the tech sector. Um, mm. But when I think about the medium to long term, I'm okay with with sacrificing this sort of short term performance, you know, as, as hard as it feels sometimes, in order to stick with the really high quality growth names that are going to be many times bigger in a few years' time, that are going to keep serving their customers well. 
Um, and I want to avoid those, you know, structurally challenged sectors that are going to get some short term relief in the next couple of months. Um, but then, you know, after, after that short term bounce, they will still find themselves with those structural issues to contend with. Um, mm. And my job is, you know, it's to pick the long term winners rather than to try and time the market. I'm glad you brought up structurally challenged areas of the market because uh, the high street is definitely one of those. And I suppose it's it's kind of, you know, in, immediately kind of on the face of it jarring that you have as a growth investor exposure to the UK high street through um, Greg's Greg's the, the baker. You know, it is a company that, you know, prior to the pandemic, I guess, kind of. Um, you know, along with the likes of Smith, WH Smith and JD Sports kind of buck the trend of, de- of declining high street sales. That was before the pandemic. Um, you know, as the pandemic recedes, do you think that kind of long term case is still there? Can you still kind of get growth out of something on the on the high street? What's your what's your view on that right now? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting point. Um Greg's, you know, let's take Greg's first. Um, before the pandemic, as you say, they were really firing on all cylinders. Absolutely incredible growth coming out of that business. Um, they've got lots of levers to pull. Um, and then this year, they've shown kind of how actually resilient the model is. And it's really, to me, highlighted the outstanding management team. So they've been forced to be shut a lot of the time. But this is a team who is able to move so rapidly and is also able to sense the way that tastes are going. Um, You know, we sort of saw that with the vegan um, sausage roll and the rest of the vegan range that they launched. They added um, a delivery app this year, longer opening hours, so you can get pizza and a a drink um, for for supper now. They've also committed to launching more healthy eating products from here. They pay their staff well. so they're able to they're able to kind of move with the times really really quickly. But the key for me, particularly with Greg's, is that actually only fourteen percent of their sites are in city centres or transport hubs. So the real the things that have been the places that have been hit hardest by COVID. Actually, most of them are on suburban high streets. There's one around the corner from from me where I live, um, or somewhere with parking. So actually, that that kind of suits more people working from home. And that partly explains the really impressive numbers that they posted yesterday. And the stock was up about 8%, I think, because there's this perception that Greg's is, you know, Pret-a-Manger or another, um, you know, city centre high-end sandwich chain, which it just isn't. Um, But look, sales are still down 20% from pre-pandemic levels. So Greg's actually, to me, still remains a great way to play the reopening trade. Um, and they're actually on the front foot now. They announced yesterday a larger store opening plan than before. Um, more broadly, though, for, for high street stocks, um, as you say, the, the, there are a lot of structural challenges there. And we prefer to play in the online space or actually in the logistics and warehousing space, which is kind of the corollary of that. Um, but for me, it's about owning a very few companies who are in the vanguard of change, not the laggards, not the ones who are trying to stand in the in the way of it. Um, and the ones that also have that really nimble, really experienced management team who can therefore exploit it. So JD Sport goes in that bucket for me. We've owned that for a while. And yes, I would definitely put WH Smith in, in that bucket as well, although I don't own it in the fund for now. I'm a, you know, I don't really know how working from home and travel is going to pan out from here. So we don't want too much exposure. But, you know, earnings have taken the pain already. Um, Investors want to look through to the next phase of recovery. 
we will be buying more vegan sausage rolls. Um, and, you know, management teams who can come out stronger are, in our view, the ones that you want to be aligned with if you're going to have high street retail over the longer term. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And, and I, mean, I guess one of the themes of 2020, which we've kind of already touched on slightly, was, was ESG investing and particularly renewable energy. And one of your big holdings is Sarah's Power, the fuel cell specialist had an exceptional year i think some of our listeners probably already have exposure to that theme but many will probably be wondering you know is it too late to start riding that green wave i mean do you think it's got further to run mm. yeah sarah's has been a great um holding this year last year it's done incredibly well it's up 400 percent in a year um, i have to keep trimming it actually because i have a, a a rule that i don't um have more than three percent um of the portfolio invested in any one AIM listed company. Um, but Ceres is actually in a real sweet spot at the moment. So last year they made a lot of progress, you know, inside their business. So they signed up new partnerships, new customers. And at the same time, the external environment became more positive for them with more demand from renewable, renewable fuel sources. But we haven't really scratched the surface yet, I don't think. You know, Asian governments and European governments have been you know, first movers in mandating renewable energy use, providing subsidies and guarantees. But we've really barely seen the end product reach consumers yet. Um, I think the Biden presidency likely adds more impetus from the US for green energy too. Um, and then on top of that for renewable energy companies, ESG funds saw huge inflows last year and actually it really increased November, December. And, and there's no sign of that slowing down yet. In fact, the reverse. Um, and that's also very positive for these stocks. So I think there's plenty left to go for um, as as that consumer pull takes over from the government mandates. Um, as always, I think we have to beware the names that are literally just riding the wave, as you put it, rather than, you know, with a genuinely green model or product um it's not always a super easy theme to access in the uk Sarah's is a great way to do that um and we've been looking for a few other ways to do it as well great well listen i think you've given us lots of food for thought there alexandra thanks very much for coming on the pod and very best wishes for you and the fund in 2021 thank you thanks Lee. So that's everything from us this week. Thank you ever so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. So if you've got any suggestions for people you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, drop us an email, which is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Please do leave a review of the show, if possible, on the podcast platform that you use and we will catch you next time. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.